when were the what schools where's that story it's curious city where wbez answers your questions about chicago the region and its people if you go to boys town on a friday night you're going to run into a lot of people who are very happy to be there but it's great i love having like a a gay area, which is so big. Traveling to LA, traveling to New York, there's no other place that has a a strip of bars per se that's like Boys Town. I love oh Boys Town. Oh my god, we love it. We're like the mayors of Boys Town. I'm the queen. It's a very fluid, um, accepting. Um, I would just say they make strong drinks, and, and and on top of that, it's a safe haven. It's a blast in the glass. I'm Jason Nargis. I'm a librarian with Northwestern University and Chicago Collections. Right now, I'm at a bar called Sidetrack, near the intersection of Halstead and Roscoe, to answer a question from Jack Floyd, who's here with me. I was curious about the history of Boys Town, kind of the background of the forces at play that made it become and gain attraction as a LGBT neighborhood. Now, of course, Boys Town isn't the only gay area in Chicago, but it is a big one. And the story of Boys Town is a story about LGBTQ history and about how part of that community, gay white men, got clout. It's also about who was left out. To answer Jack's question, we'll hear voices from the early history, the booming 80s and 90s, and we'll also hear a discussion about hopes for the future of Boys Town. To start us off... Let me get you guys a drink. You know, I, I'm, I'm a federal road host. I don't know if you like frozen drinks. Frozen drinks have been this thing for us forever. This is Art Johnston, co-founder of Sidetrack. This was one of the first gay bars in the neighborhood. And that's important, because without bars, there wouldn't be a Boys Town. Art's story begins in the early 70s, before Boys Town existed. In that time, there was no real gay center. It had moved around. One night, some friends said, you know, you should go out. And we went down to a couple of gay bars, and I ended up meeting this bartender I liked him instantly. Started going back occasionally to his bar, sitting and drinking. And like most bars in those days, it was a mafia bar who were the only people with enough clout to keep a gay bar open because the pressure from police, from the city, constant raids, constant harassment. I remember walking down Broadway with him and people were blowing their horns and waving. And I looked at him and said, who are you? Bartenders were celebrities in those days. We didn't have lawyers from Lambda Legal. We didn't have any of those things. We didn't have gay elected officials. Bars were truly all gay people had. You had to always be on the alert for being beaten up, being arrested, which happened commonly. And coming into a bar for a gay person was really the only moment, because it wasn't that way at work. It wasn't that way in the family. It wasn't that way in the church. It wasn't that way out on the streets. In a bar, you were home. For most of Chicago's history, bars were the de facto community centers of LGBTQ enclaves all over the city. In the first half of the 20th century, the biggest gay enclave was on the near north side. It was a very gay area, but gay people did not own their properties. And when urban renewal came to the near north, all those places basically went out of business within a year and a half. Starting in the 70s, some gay businesses migrated north to Halstead Street in Lakeview, where rent was cheap, and they set up shop. Quick short story. When we first opened in 82, 
in the bar business, you never know. When you open the door, is anybody going to actually show up? We just didn't know. We were absolutely rolled over. We were jammed from the moment we opened the doors until the moment we closed the doors. Crazy jammed. We did not have a basement, so we stored the beer along one wall. Over time, that became seating, and you often could not get to the bar to get a drink. So people would resort to opening the beer cases they were sitting on. They would drink the warm beer all night because they couldn't, they didn't want to give up their seat. That first night, there was such excitement. I heard people saying things like, my God, I've never had such a good time in a bar in my life. It was just, it was a lot of amazing energy. In those days, we had no sense of what this was going to become. When I started covering the gay community in 1984, immediately I was on Halstead Street covering it. Tracy Bame is the co-founder and publisher of Windy City Times, an LGBTQ newspaper in Chicago. She came on the scene just as that strip of bars was beginning its transformation into something more established. It's always been more than just a bar area. People have gathered for protests. They've gathered for meetings and planning. The gay rights movement was tackling big issues in the 80s, and Boys Town helped them do that. Activists and business owners drafted a human rights ordinance that outlawed discrimination based on sexual orientation. And when AIDS struck, people took to the streets, demanding help from the city. And by the early 80s, some bars like Sidetrack started to anchor that district. And they bought their spaces, so they were not kicked out when rents went up. They also gained political clout, so that when um, things were going to happen in the neighborhood, they could lobby, and they would be heard, because they had a much stronger voice when we owned our own bars, as opposed to a lot of mafia ownership. So the community had more clout, the community had more money, and more openly gay people were opening those businesses. But it wasn't perfect. I mean, it's called Boys Town. It's pretty much been a gay male center, and primarily white, but certainly other uh, racial demographics as well. Every community has its own biases, and the LGBT community of Chicago has racism, sexism, and, um, you know, it just has the same kind of segregation. By the late 90s, Boys Town was booming. At that time, Mary Morton was the LGBTQ liaison for Mayor Richard M. Daley. It was this corridor that generated millions of dollars. That's how it came to the attention of the city. In 1997, Daly officially designated Boys Town as Chicago's gay village, the first time that happened in a big city. The overall community is understood to be a group that has political clout and economic clout. Absolutely. And I think it was like, this is his way of saying, I support you. Early in his administration, Daly was criticized for not doing enough about AIDS. But later, he appointed Chicago's first openly gay city council member and supported marriage equality. And for Boys Town, he made a grand gesture, a public works project. He wanted to leave each community with something that was significant in terms of its culture. And in this case, we got rainbow pylons. Some people thought it would add a target to the backs of people in the area. Other people thought it would devalue property. Other people thought it would increase the value of property. So you had straight people advocating for it and against, and you had gay people advocating for it and against. It was really odd. But in the end, the project did move ahead, although I will say that the pylons were redesigned. I think that was a good thing. You know, they weren't the most attractive structures and um, certainly pretty phallic. People may think that now, but I would just say that the redesign is better. (laughs) 
These allegedly phallic pylons have anchored Boys Town as a gay destination ever since. But as more straight people move in, it's gotten, well, less gay. Many people say it doesn't feel like a safe haven anymore. On top of that, queer women and trans folk don't always feel welcome. And racial tensions are high. Like when some white residents launched a Take Back Boys Town campaign and blamed queer youth of color for a string of violent crimes. All this raises questions. What is the future of Boys Town? How will it stay relevant? Can it be a safe haven for the most vulnerable segments of the LGBTQ community? For the last word in this story, I pulled together some people for a conversation about all of this. The voices you'll hear are Abhijit Rane, a trans, non-binary club promoter and drag performer, Chuck Renslow, a gay business owner, activist, and founder of the Leather Archives and Museum, Andy Meadows, a photographer and queer historian, and Jay Wilson, a trans, non-binary drag performer. We started with a big question. Do we even need a gay neighborhood anymore? People of my age and so forth who lived in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, you were living in a society that looked at you with animosity. Mm -hmm. But that has changed, and I think that's a wonderful thing. And I think that places like Boys Town contributes to that feeling of being together and everything, you know. And it was also so hard won by so many people, like putting themselves on the front lines for us to be able to live freely. And I think the struggle is very different now. We're questioning, you know, are we going to assimilate into mainstream culture? Can we assimilate? What, what will we lose if we do that? And I think that... I think you're absolutely right, and I like your point. Whether it can be better, absolutely. Why can't we have a couple lesbian bars there? We don't have them. Yeah. Why can't we have a bar for bisexuals? And I think that's what the expansion should go to. Can I ask if some people would describe an example of a more inclusive dance party performance space? I will list you a top ten. No, I will <laughs> list you as many as I can remember. The most like, inclusive party I can think of right now is Tropiteca. It's run by queer women of color. There's a lot of like more inclusive stuff coming up in Boys Town, too. There's um, Femmes Room. There's also Fabitat. These are also all monthly things. Yeah. These aren't established bars. Yeah, these are all like monthly pop-ups. Well, and also like Tropiteca and Fabitat both lost their home bars this year. It's really tough to maintain safe spaces for queer people. Yeah. Not going to lie, I do crave that. Yeah. That space that like that I could go any night of the week and be amongst queer folk and specifically queer women. Yeah. I would be lying if I said I didn't want to dismantle things that the baby boomers and before them built. What we have today was built on walls enforced by binary, and we have to totally restructure that. I think we're all living through enough discrimination to recognize we need to reevaluate ourselves, we need to reevaluate our community because we're not perfect, and that's fine. We aren't there yet but we can be there. Reporting for this story came from me, Jason Nargis, and Stephen Jackson. Support for Curious City comes from the Doris and Howard Conant Fund for Journalism.
Next time on Curious City, should Chicago use long-lasting concrete to pave its roads or cheaper asphalt? It turns out this is an old argument. If you were to go back and look at the Roman roads, there was probably some guy peddling asphalt and some guy peddling whatever version of cement and concrete. The competition between concrete and asphalt people is legendary. Why Chicago usually chooses asphalt. That's next time on WBEZ's Curious City. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Before we start the show, we here at Curious City want to let you in on a little-known fact about WBEZ. 89% of all our funding comes from community support, including contributions from curious listeners like you. If this program has changed how you see Chicago, please consider supporting this program at wbez.org slash curious. Thank you.